You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 51, The Trial of Faith. God will impose trials in the lives of the godly. These will be tests, but not temptations. Not every challenge in life is God-imposed, but he will offer a way out for the faithful from their trials. There is a significant difference between the great value of a controlled fire, a trial, as opposed to an uncontrolled fire from which faith is absent. I had originally intended to move on to the principle of thankfulness with this class, but I realized we had not directly addressed a very significant issue concerning faith, which is the trials of our faith. There are a number of rules found in Scripture about these expected challenges to our faith. First, we should understand that anyone with faith will experience these challenges to our faith, and in varying degrees. 2 Timothy 3, we're told, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is a universal rule. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will definitely suffer persecution. The control factor here is living godly in Christ Jesus. Those within the enlightened community who struggle against the societal current, which is extremely ungodly, will definitely be targeted and to some degree abused. For being different, for being disrespectful to the foundational presumptions of society that the majority determines what is right and what is good, this does not mean that everyone within the enlightened community will suffer persecution. Only those who live godly, which is certainly not everyone within the enlightened community. Another rule about trials is that some of these trials will be imposed by God. These God-imposed trials are for the purpose of developing quality in the one experiencing that trial. These trials are not for the purpose of driving away anyone, but that can be the effect. The purpose of these God-imposed trials distinguishes the difference between the terms test and tempt. We know that God does not tempt anyone. We read this in James 1. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm in, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But everyone that is tempted is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God not only, not only cannot be tempted, as would be true for anyone sharing God's nature, but also he will not tempt anyone. Unfortunately, the King James translation does suggest that God tempted Abraham. We read in Genesis 22, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. 
And he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Uh, the Hebrew verb translated tempt in verse 1 is nasah, um, N-A-C-A-H, and the, the dominant translation is actually prove, to prove something, or to put it to the test. I checked about 30 other Old Testament translations, and all but two translated this word as tried, tested, or proved. Uh, my personal favorite translation, the Revised Standard Version, is well, the most accurate, according to the truth, is listed on the bottom of this sampling of so many translations of this verse. God most definitely tests and proves us, but he never tempts. The difference between tempting and testing is motivation. We've considered this issue of motivation in the past and how the distinction of motivation makes a huge difference, such as when one man kills another. If, if one killed with intent, then that was murder, and the offender had to be executed under the laws of the kingdom of God. But if that death was unintentional, God provided a path of escape with six cities of refuge. Another motivation differential example would be that God's provision of the sin offerings was on the basis of being what is defined as sins of ignorance. But there was no sin offering for a presumptuous sin, only a permanent ostracism or execution. That rule applies also to sin forgiveness in our ecclesial age as well. We've read from Hebrews 10 before, where it says, if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Even the sin offering of Jesus Christ will not provide an avenue of forgiveness for the presumptuous sin, the intentional sin. When we sin willfully in full knowledge of our sin comfort with our failure, taking forgiveness for granted as if forgiveness is unconditional and automatic. So the issue of motivation can impose a huge difference in relation to consequences due to our failure to faithfully manifest God's righteousness in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Motivation is what separates the behaviors of tempting and testing. Temptation is based on a failure intention, a quality decline. Testing is based on a success intention, a quality improvement. When our teachers in school threw a pop quiz at us, they didn't call it a 10-question tempt. They called it a 10-question test. Our teacher's hope was our success, not our failure. God will impose fiery trials in our lives, but his intention is developing greater quality. The creational testimony validating this divine truth is how metal is mined from the earth, the dust of the earth, and it's improved with controlled heat. We too have been mined from the earth, the dust of the earth, in a sense, the creator formed man 
from the dust of the earth and breathe the breath of life into Adam. Metals are mined out of the earth and purified with fire, separating out the impurities that have different densities. There's also the issue of tempering metal, making it stronger through controlled fire. If one applies too much heat, the metal actually becomes softer and weaker, damaged. Too little heat, and there's no change in the composition of the metal. God uses gold in Scripture to represent faith. In 1 Peter 1, we read that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Even the, the sons of men understand this relationship between gold and faithfulness. We use a ring of gold to symbolize a marriage between a man and a woman. That gold has first to be hidden, found, it had to be found hidden in the earth, um, identified as gold, not pyrite, which is called fool's gold. Then that gold has to be excavated then the ore has to be processed with fairly intense heat that separates out the impurities that are often lighter and less dense than gold. This refining process is not done just once, it's done repeatedly in order to produce different levels of quality. Then that gold is cut, pounded, shaped into a circle that has no beginning, no end. Then that gold ring is given as a symbol of what is supposed to be a lifelong love, an exclusive faithfulness between a bridegroom and a bride. This processing of a gold ring for marriage is a projection of the development of the faith that God asks for and our commitment to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This refining process is referenced in Proverbs chapter 17. The fining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the hearts. In fact, this refinement principle is evident in the shadow projection of the immortalized Christ and the saints in the cherubim and the composite man visions of the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and the apostle John. John first witnesses a vision of the immortalized Christ in his uh, Revelation book. This is obvious as that's exactly how this vision of a man with hair as white as snow and flaming eyes and a golden girdle and a face that shined like the sun with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and those two brass feet. Uh, that composite man defines himself by saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death, of the grave and of death. But we want to consider the description of the feet in this vision of the immortalized Christ that serves as a template for the promised immortalization of the saints. In verse 15, we read about those feet, and his feet, like unto fine brass, is if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. This vision of immortality includes feet that were so shiny and polished, they gave the appearance of being burned, refined, purified in a furnace through intense heat. 
Daniel saw the same composite man image with a very similar description, description of the feet in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Daniel writes, his body was like beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. This is the same description of the man in John's vision. They share this image of bright, shining brass feet that John is told have been refined in a furnace of fire. Ezekiel's vision of the cherubim, another shadow representation of the immortalized Christ and the saints, says this in chapter 1 in reference to the cherubim. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. A few years ago in the, in the Sunday school classes, um, my home ecclesia in Cranston, Rhode Island, we spent a number of weeks considering these fire-refined brass calves' feet in the series entitled Visions of the Kingdom Age. And most of those classes are available on YouTube. Uh, we made several observations about those common feet in these three visions of the multitudinous Christ. Our current focus is that furnace-refining feature in relation to the way God develops our faith through the application of fiery trials. But there are a number of significant issues to these foundational feet of these cherubim. Since there are four cherubim, then we have a total of eight feet. And eight is the number of salvation, our Savior, and immortality. The fact that these eight feet in the four cherubim each have cloven hooves, that we actually have 16 foundational components due to that dual nature of each foot. In the same pattern, there will be two separate immortalizations of the saints, first in the beginning of the seventh millennium and then in the beginning of the eighth millennium. These brass furnace refined calves feet are defined as straight feet. But that, that really isn't, that isn't a geometric uh, identification. The Hebrew word is yashar, and it's primarily translated as right, upright, and righteous. These are feet of righteousness that have been refined in the furnace of purifying trials. Another highly significant observation about these cherubim feet is that they are cloven hooves. Since there are two feet to each cherubim, are therefore four foundational components due to those two cloven hoof feet, just like the memorial name of God with its four letters of YHWH. Those two cloven hoof feet are a declaration of the incredibly significant principle of spiritual balance due to the fact that every divine principle has exactly two separate applications that have to be balanced. We've noted in the past how it takes two to go from six to eight, from the curse of sin and death, six, to blessed salvation, eight. Therefore, the uprightness, the righteousness of these feet in the shadow projections of the immortalized Christ and the saints is confirmed in how those who will become saints will have had their faith refined in fiery trials by correctly balancing those always two aspects 
and every divine principle in order to demonstrate the righteousness of our Creator in their walk through life, as that walk is what is indicated in these feet of the cherubim and the feet of Daniel's and John's visions of the composite man. Our point is that fiery trials are a tool of God to develop that quality he seeks in the enlightened community. This would not be the case if God's primary goal in the development of the saints was only quantity. With its necessarily low standards, the presumption of conditionless forgiveness, the disrespect for the principle of absolute truth, and the denial of the balancing principle of personal righteousness. However, we should also recognize that every single challenge in our lives will not be God-directed. Solomon explains that time and chance have their effects on all people. But just as we can recognize every challenging situation is not God-directed, we have to recognize that some of these challenges will certainly be God-directed. We're warned that we also reap what we sow. Challenging situations often result from our instinctive decisions and accommodating preferences, self-accommodating preferences. Now, one of the other rules about fiery trials in the context of that improved quality goal is that God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can bear. We read this in 1 Corinthians 10. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, this rule can be applied to God-imposed trials, our own self-inflicted situations, and those that are imposed on us by family or society, whether employers or neighbors or, or time and chance, but are not directed by God. The same rule applies. The path for overcoming these trials is faith, but not inactivity. We don't just sit back and wait for manna to fall from heaven. We have to use those feet being burnished in the furnace of our trials. It is our faith that protects us. And Paul confirms this in uh, defining the, the armor of our faith, of the uh, enlightened community. Ephesians 6, we say, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. This is a common expression of King David, that God was his shield, his protection in conflict. Now, David certainly experienced divinely orchestrated, orchestrated trials that were intended to produce that quality in the pursuit of God's image and likeness that was originally invested in mankind, but then, of course, forfeited in Eden. David was anointed to be king as a teenager, the youngest of the eight sons, when he was assigned to keep the sheep. That anointing by the prophet and the judge, Samuel, would certainly put him at odds with his older brothers that were passed over. David was supposed to protect that family flock of sheep. And when he offered to fight the giant super soldier, Goliath, he recounted how he had protected the flock from both of two violent predators, 
a bear and a lion. That teenage boy killed both the bear and the lion all by himself. David had faith because he actually pursued both the lion and the bear after they'd already taken what was probably a lamb. David didn't just say, oh, well, we, we lost a lamb and maybe I can set a trap for that animal or I can assemble my brothers and we can go track and track down and kill that lion so there'll be no more from the flock maybe lost. He defended that lamb in that mouth of that dangerous predator, jeopardizing his own life, but confident in God's shield-like protection. We all know what David did with Goliath, that smooth stone fired at bullet speed from his sling with perfect precision as he ran towards the soldier into the forehead of that giant soldier, David certainly had faith. But a great deal of responsibility would be divinely assigned to David. David needed a lot of development to develop that, that degree of trust and complete reliance of God before he could actually rule as the king that he was anointed to be. I particularly appreciate the story of David when King Saul took a nap in the cave in which those desperate men were hiding. What a perfect opportunity for David to end his trials. And apparently God had given David permission to kill Saul. David's men remind him of a promise that God had made to David that they were, they were aware of. In 1 Samuel 24, we read, And the men of David said to him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you. Let's observe that David did not contradict his men and say, What in the world are you talking about? Apparently God had given David permission to kill his enemies, that God would deliver into the hand of David. And there, there, there was the greatest enemy of David, his father-in-law, who brought 3,000 soldiers to hunt down David and kill him. David could have ended his exile and the exile of all his men supporting him who would like to return to their families, their farms. David's respect for God restrained his self-interest, despite having permission. So he had to run from King Saul to avoid execution and lived as an outlaw for a number of years, even having to hide among the Philistines. We read in 1 Samuel 24, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. It was that status of David's greatest enemy, being anointed by God, that overcame the personal advantages that were available to David and his men that prevented David from taking uh, advantage of that privilege that God had offered. Now, of course, David, God gave David the right to choose whatever he determined to be appropriate when God delivered his enemy into David's control, which would have included execution without guilt. I particularly appreciate David's integrity, 
placing the mere technicality of being anointed by God to be more significant than his own life being in jeopardy and the lives of the men who followed him and his own justified vengeance. This is one of those situations that Jesus referenced when he said on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of the Father, your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be therefore perfect, meaning mature, uh, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That is certainly a trial of faith, the absence of vengeance against those who abuse and misuse us and those we love, those who intentionally humiliate and marginalize us, those who take from us, as Saul tried to take everything from David, even his own life and the life of his friends. So we always need to consider our motivations. What's the real reason we do what we do? This is why Paul warns us in the context of partaking in memorial service that we examine ourselves, because if we don't, we can be guilty of the body and blood of our Messiah, which is a very dangerous thing. And Paul even highlights how some in the Corinthian ecclesia were dead and diseased for that very absence of self-consideration, disrespecting the memorial service ritual while ignoring their own conscience. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks, drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, meaning they've died for this particular reason. I find it rather interesting that Mark 14 is the far more common reading used for our memorial services. There are no unpleasant warnings in Mark's account. When I was much younger, many decades ago, it was that 1 Corinthians 11 reference. It was almost exclusively used for memorial service in our brotherhood, but, that, but not that much anymore. However, I have to admit the full, rather unpleasant warning was not read at that time either. So, in the experience of our own fiery trials, we should be examining our motivations. And as we've already considered in the past, forgiveness is not automatic. There are conditions to qualify for that forgiveness that's offered by God and Christ. I also particularly enjoy reading and rereading that last great trial of David just before he replaced Saul as king, well, at least over Judah, David was hiding in the land of the Philistines, raiding the Geshurites and the, the Amalekites, and giving part of the spoils to Achish, the king of Gath, the very city Goliath had lived in before David killed him many years before. But David told Achish they had raided communities in Judah. 
So, when the Philistine cities joined to battle Israel, Achish required David and his men to join them in battle. David and the 600 men with him accompanied the Philistines' army of Achish to the anticipated battle with the very nation that David had been anointed by God to be their king. I can imagine the grumbling of David's men anticipating the prospect of either fighting their own family or dying when they turned on the Philistines and never, never seeing their wives and children again. There must have been some very tearful goodbyes when those men left their wives and sons and daughters to follow David into war with the Philistines against their own family, against the enlightened community. But we know that that trial was resolved when the other Philistine leaders opposed the presence of David and his Israelite soldiers. The Philistines insisted the Israelites return to Ziklag. And they arrived on the third day back at Ziklag. And we can be sure the walk back from the impending battle was joyful, thankful. But of course, when they arrived, their homes were burned to the ground. Everyone was gone. Thankfully, there were no bodies to be seen. Their homes were incinerated. Their goods and flocks and herds were gone, along with their wives and children. And there was grumbling again. David was being blamed for this. Some spoke of stoning David to death. Now that particular execution method reveals that these men presumed this was a punishment from God because David had led them to battle alongside the enemies of God's kingdom. Now these were soldiers. They had weapons, probably many taken from those that they had defeated. They would have swords, spears, bows, and arrows. But they spoke of stoning David to death. That was the divine execution method for those who broke the stone covenant, those Ten Commandments written in stone by the finger of God. But David overcame this trial as well. We read this in uh, 1 Samuel 30. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David responded by encouraging himself in Yahweh his Elohim, in he who shall become his mighty ones. And this is the avenue that we need to follow, to encourage ourselves when faced with challenges, to refuel that faith that burns more powerfully than the fiery trials themselves. See, fighting fire with fire is a standard tool for those who fight forest fires. A small controlled fire eliminates the fuel for a, an accelerating fire, a fast spreading fire. Now, another example would be the principle used in vaccinations like the COVID vaccines that are intended to prevent the deadly full application of the virus by subjecting us to a small and controlled dose of that same virus that would develop the necessary defense mechanisms with our immunity uh, um, system 
that's designed into our nature. A small, controlled fire can be a very good thing. This is what David was doing when he encouraged himself in God. He wasn't getting encouragement from anyone else. He was getting threats from his own ecclesial brethren, just like his greatest descendant would endure 28 generations in the future. David's faith resiliency inspired those other 600 brethren in the truth after consulting with God through the ephod to pursue those who had stolen their wives and children and goods, David's faith was inspiring to others. Others were lifted up and encouraged by David's confidence in God. The answer from God was that they would recover everything. We know what happened, how they had come upon the Egyptian slave who had been abandoned, left to die with no bread or water for three days and three nights. We see that familiar time stamp again that we recently considered in relation to fasting. This Egyptian slave restored to health and life and strength after three days and three nights of imposed fasting, led the now 400 Israelites to the Amalekite encampment where they were celebrating their wealth and victories with feasting, dancing, and a lot of drinking. David and his men attacked while it was still dark, and despite their exhaustion, battled the Amalekite marauders for over 12 hours in hand-to-hand combat. Obviously, God strengthened these weakened Israelites and increased their deadly accuracy. Some of us today have actually witnessed that same divine blessing on the descendants of these men. The incredible success of the Israelites in the Six-Day War in 1967 against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria is absolutely miraculous. This was the promised blossoming of the national fig tree from which Jesus declared, this generation will not pass away before all Jesus prophesied about in the Olivet Prophecy would be fulfilled, including his return to earth and the restoration of the kingdom of God. Not a single Israelite lost their life in that battle, despite their exhaustion. Not a single wife or child was lost. Not only were all the families restored, but now all of them were wildly rich from the vast range of goods those Amalekites had accumulated from all of their raids. David validates the faith he had when he promised the 200 that did not join the 400 in battle a share in the immense amount of goods they took from the Amalekites. And David explained that victory was God's and not theirs. In 1 Samuel 30, we read, Then I'll answered all the wicked men and men of Belial uh, of those that went with David and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. Just like that promise that was made to David that he did not take advantage of with Saul. 
For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goes down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarries by the stuff, and they shall all part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. David refused to take credit for that incredible victory. He faithfully insisted that the only reason they were so dramatically successful was because God was orchestrating that victory. And they had no right to claim this as their own, separate from God. We also know how everyone is soon informed of the death of Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa. David is now 30 years old, many years since he was anointed as the next king of Israel, back when he was just a teenager. David had been processed by God, prepared for that kingship appointment, having his faith developed and refined through many fiery trials. We're not David's. And the Bible has not referred to any one of us as a man or a woman after God's own heart. But, but we do hope our future will include becoming the kings and priests that will rule the world under Jesus Christ. If that's our future, then we are going to experience faith education and refinement experiences. Oh, we will not be those king priests in the kingdom to come. And right now there's less time to that point than there was between David's anointment to be king as a teenager and his ascension to that throne when he was 30 years old. Now, we have had a rather trying experience with this global pandemic. It should be recognized this pandemic has been a refining process and a test to our faith and our, our own consistency in our dedication to our God and our King. But let's also recognize that we are in the absolute end time of the ecclesial age, just before everything is going to change so dramatically on this entire planet. This transition is repeatedly paralleled in scripture to a new birth. Now, thankfully, I have never had the experience of giving birth. I'm also one of those guys who absolutely refuses to be present in the delivery room when, when my wife was giving birth. But I do understand the process. I was certainly there when the birthing process began with that embryonic water release and the accelerating contractions that intensify with each progressive experience until birth. Since the introduction of the restoration of God's kingdom has been paralleled to this birthing process, then it's very reasonable to understand there may be more violent pre-kingdom global contractions yet to be endured. Let's remember that divine rule of to whom much is given, much will be required. The faith testing and refining of our last generation of the ecclesial age may become more and more challenging due to unexpected developments such as this pandemic.
we have been given an incredible level of value from God, from which he has the right to expect a very considerable faithful response. For many hundreds of years, it was illegal to be caught reading a Bible, unless, of course, you were an agent of the Antichrist religious system. Now, now we not only have the freedom to read by, by more than uh, two scores of translations that are available to us, we have online concordances and lexicons and search engines, We've witnessed the prophesied first resurrection of the national firstborn son of God, the nation of Israel, with its four-stage reconstruction and its fig tree flourishing. We have a massive amount of archaeological confirmations of Bible truths. We've had mathematical validations of Bible truths with the, that equidistant letter sequence research from the Hebrew University back in the 90s that prompted that flood of Bible code distortions in order to hide the needle of truth inside a haystack of lies. But we should be able to identify truth. We also now have an understanding of how the features and operating design of creation validates Bible truths from the structure of the universe right down to atomic structure. We have a level of scientific knowledge that is unparalleled in the history of the world. So we had better recognize we have been given a great deal and therefore a lot will be required of this last generation of ours. I doubt very much God is finished with testing the faith of everyone in the enlightened community at this time. Let's just remember those two fire categories. The controlled fire that provides life, richness of life, and the uncontrolled fire that only destroys and kills. Let's also remember those eight eternal fires in God's design of his sanctuary. Those, there were the seven golden lamps in the holy chamber of the tabernacle, and God forbid that those controlled flames should ever be allowed to be extinguished. The other flame was on that Christ altar of burnt offering. And that controlled fire was also divinely forbidden to be allowed to be extinguished. Controlled fire advantage examples would include the sun around which the earth rotates due to its perfect distance between the earth and the sun to permit and uh, cultivate life. It would include the heating of our homes and our cars, the cooking of our food, the tempering of our metals, the protection in the wilderness from dangerous wild beasts. And control fire can also be defense against the uncontrolled fires, uh, forest fires that only destroys and kills. Faith development is all about that controlled fire application. It's the absence of faith that accelerates that controlled fire with all its benefits into an uncontrolled fire that only destroys and kills. We, we still have a few things to note in relation to this issue about trying our faith. So we will be addressing, uh, still be addressing this in our next class. I had originally intended to move on to the principle of thankfulness with this class, but I realized we had not 
directly addressed a very significant issue concerning faith, which is the trials of our faith. There are a number of rules found in Scripture about these expected challenges to our faith. First, Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.